Welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax podcast. In this series, we talk to attorneys, accountants, and other tax professionals about the latest developments in the world of tax. I'm your host, Andrea Ben-Yosef, and we're excited that you're here with us today. This is Andrea Ben-Yosef with Bloomberg Taxes Talking Tax. Today's podcast is about the new regulations covering association health plans, an issue that can potentially affect millions of Americans. I am here with Alden Bianchi, the practice group leader of Mince Levin's Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation Practice in Boston, and Christopher Condolucci, the principal and sole shareholder of CCL Law and Policy, PLLC, in Washington, D.C., Thank you to both of you for being here with us today. So first, I'm going to ask you, Chris, what are association health plans? At its core, an association health plan is a group health plan. So as a group health plan, uh, there are many requirements that we all know that do apply to group health plans. That includes the ACA's coverage requirements, for example. It includes ERISA, HIPAA, COBRA, and other requirements that apply to a group health plan. So the fact that it's an association health plan doesn't mean it's a different creature, a different type of health plan. At the end of the day, it is a group health plan. Uh, When it comes to uh, those that can sponsor the health plan, and this kind of gets to our second question, which, Andrew, you'll be asking momentarily, is it really comes down to what type of group of employers are you for purposes of sponsoring the association health plan? And the reason I bring that up is... To become a group, obviously you have multiple employers coming together. So it's multiple employers coming together to form a group, and that group then sponsors the association health plan, in this case, a group health plan. So Alden, why don't you explain what the prior law was and what has changed now in the new final regulation? Uh, Sure, happy to do that. But, But first, let me make an observation, and that is there's one core question here, and that is under what circumstances can you put a bunch of small groups together to make a big group? And even though I've used small and big colloquially in that sentence, uh, it really means under what circumstances can you pluck small groups out of state small group markets and make them a separate uh, standalone large group plan that is essentially rated on its own and subject to more favorable requirements under the Affordable Care Act. So under prior law, the ability to to take a bunch of small groups and make one large group was pretty much constrained. It was very difficult to do. And the only folks that could do it were, 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 were associations or groups that had some pre-existing uh, connection that went back uh, for some time and was pretty firm and had a purpose other than health care. Uh, so, for example, you might have a, a, a franchise organization uh, decide that all of its, fra- its franchise or per- franchisee purchasing group might want to form such a plan. Well, that franchisee purchaser group had, has been around for a while and has a purpose other than group health plans. And so under those circumstances, under prior law, that group might have been able to qualify. And to do so, they needed sign-off from the Department of Labor. Uh, under the new rules, it's going to be quite a bit broader, but we'll get that as we go through the next few questions. So why should people care about AHPs? Yeah, and this is Chris, and I'll jump in. 
and it, it also is, is related back to the, the points that Alden just made, and it relates to what these groups, what allows these different employers to group together under prior law and the changes under the new regulations. As Alden articulated under prior law, the different employer members that can group together to then sponsor this group health plan had to be in the same industry and had to be located in the same state. Now, that was prior law. And to a certain degree, those constraints, i.e. you have to be in the same industry and you have to be located in the same states, were some of the constraints that Alden was alluding to. Now, the new final regulations provide more flexibility, more flexibility in allowing these employers to group together to sponsor an AHP. And what is that flexibility? Well, employers just have to be in the same industry. No longer are they constrained by the geographic constraint that was part of the prior law uh, rules that we just articulated. The other aspect of the final regs that provided more flexibility is that it allows unrelated employers, employers in different industries and in disparate industries, to group together to sponsor this group health plan. But the regs do constrain these unrelated employers to the same state. So what does that mean in practice, at least going forward with the new regs? Well, a local chamber of commerce full of unrelated employers can actually group those employers together. It's considered a bona fide group, although we didn't uh, specifically identify that term or define that term, but just it's a specific uh, term of art. But if you are this group of unrelated local chamber of commerce members, you meet the final rules if you are located in the same state and therefore you can sponsor a group health plan that is then provided certain treatment. And as Alden alluded to some of that treatment is you are treated as a large group fully insured plan should you decide to uh, contract with insurance carrier and you can also set up a self-insured plan. So the prior law was uh, related, same state, uh, new regs say related, no geographic constraint, unrelated, same state, you can all group together and sponsor this large group plan or a self-insured plan. Now, to Andrea's question about, you know, why should people care about association health plans? Well, you know, folks in the small group market, um, you know, arguably are struggling with the fact that the small group market sadly remains a broken market. It sadly remains a dysfunctional market. And I don't say that from a policy or political perspective. I just think it's a verifiable, objective observation. And those small employers uh, arguably need additional alternatives. And this administration felt that it was necessary to provide small employers these additional alternatives and decided to expand or provide more flexibility with respect to the association health plan rules to allow these small employers to group together, meet the rules that we just articulated, sponsor group health plan, and that group health plan is, again, a large group health plan if you're fully insured, or a self-insured plan. And let me say one more thing, Andrea, before I turn it back to you and Alden. Another change that's very important under the final regs is it allows independent contractors, self-employed individuals with no employees, to participate in an association health plan. And this is related to your question about who should care about AHPs. Well, you have self-employed individuals with no employees, independent contractors, right now in the un- subsidized individual market. And we all know that the unsubsidized individual market is not a great place to be. With high costs, uh, you're shouldering the full brunt of the price point for that particular plan. And so there are many independent contractors that also want additional alternatives. And again, this administration wanting to provide flexibility 
said, hey, let's provide additional flexibility to these independent contractors and give them another alternative. And this alternative in this case is an association health plan. That being all said, Alden, let me ask you, how will AHPs impact state, small group, and individual markets? Well, Andrea, this is the, this is the big partisan divide with AHPs. This is the very big question. And on the one hand, we don't know yet because this rule hasn't gone into effect. So let's talk about the two possibilities. On the one hand, the, the state regulators and the National Association of Insurance Commissioners worry greatly that these rules will simply gut the small group markets in their states. They fear, and perhaps rightly, that, that many of the good risks will migrate to AHPs, leaving the bad risks behind. And, and that, in effect, would make the exchanges into a, into a high-risk pool. The proponents of AHPs say, look, the small group market is already in extremis. It's, it's not working. We've got to do something to allow uh, group, small groups in particular to have some other options. Uh, and so that's, that's their pitch, and that's really the, the theme of, of the preamble to the, to the final regulations. Um, I think there is certainly some truth to the position that state small groups will, markets will suffer. That's addressed in the, uh, in the preamble, in the economic impact portion of the preamble to the rule. Um, but, the, but the proposed impact is, or the assessed impact is pretty small. Um, so all we can do is wait and see what happens as we go forward. Chris, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, and just when I, when I talk to actuaries about this very question, you know, they do indeed say that, yes, it's likely that healthy individuals from the unsubsidized individual market will migrate to an AHP, as well as healthy employer groups in the small group market will do so. But the actuaries also indicate that less healthy individuals in the unsubsidized individual market, as well as less healthy small employer groups, will similarly migrate to an association health plan, because in most cases, association health plans will offer lower costing coverage that in many cases is just as comprehensive as a plan that a large employer offers, which generally is in line with the comprehensiveness that the ACA requires in the individual and small group markets. So while there might be healthier folks going, there will certainly be less healthy folks going, and arguably those two uh, risks less healthy and healthy, might cancel each other out from an impact on the respective markets, i.e. the individual and small group market, but we just don't know. We don't know how many healthy folks are going to go. We don't know how many less healthy folks are going to go, but we do know that there will be migration from these markets to AHPs. Well, we will see in the next year, I guess, how things start to shake out. Now, what about the issue of self-funding? Will AHPs be allowed to self-fund? Yeah, no, and let me take a crack at this, and then I want to hear your thoughts. Association health plans can be self-funded group health plans uh, under the prior rules as well as under the final regs going forward. But here is arguably the issue when it comes to self-funded. So I just want to establish that, yes, association health plans can be self-funded. Now, the question is, is will they self-fund? And technically, there is no legal prohibition from self-funding. But there arguably is a practical one, and that is, as many may know, uh, states have the exclusive authority to regulate self-insured MIWAs, multiple employer welfare arrangements, which at the end of the day is what a self-insured HP is, self-insured MIWA. 
So states having the exclusive authority to regulate self-insured MIA, because ERISA explicitly allows that, um, states have enacted state MIWA laws. And the state MIWA laws range from uh, prescriptive to permissive. And it's these different state MIWA laws that are setting up a patchwork set of requirements that, even under these final regulations, a self-insured plan has to meet. In other words, if you're a self-insured HP, you have to meet the state MIWA laws in each state in which your self-insured AHP coverage is offered. And oftentimes that is simply cost prohibitive from navigating all the various legal rules in each of the particular states. Uh, and as a result, self-funding AHPs or self-funded AHPs will likely be limited, certainly in the short term. So Alden, I would love to hear your thoughts. So Chris is right. I mean, there's nothing to prevent self-funding, but it is important to understand that I, I, and I don't know what the what the exact number is, but I but a preponderance of the states treat self-funded MIWAs as unlicensed insurance companies. So it, it poses a pretty high bar. And the mention in the in the applicability date provisions of the final rule, I think, causes a little bit of confusion because it creates the the sense that that somehow these rules are green lighting self-funded. AHPs, and they're not. They they simply say that um, that to the extent that a, a self-funded AHP can operate in a state, then then it can do so. But it's still subject to the full panoply of state laws governing the transfer of risk. Okay. Well, who benefits from AHPs, and will they work? You know, I think we've to a extent touched on that as we both Alden and I articulated the rules and the impact where this might be, and the the major impact is going to be. Self-employed individuals with no employees, independent contractors who are in the individual market, in the unsubsidized individual market, that is, as well as small employers. So because one can make a strong argument, you know, we still don't know for sure because we don't know price points as of yet on these association health plans, but all signs are pointing to the fact that association health plans as a group health plan, as a large group plan, as a self-funded plan, however way they're going to be structured, will have a lower cost relative to a small group fully insured plan and will have a lower cost relative to an unsubsidized individual market plan. So just based on that, based on cost, we can say that individuals, independent contractors in the unsubsidized market, small employers, will benefit from association health plans. Now, from a coverage perspective, as I articulated at the beginning of my remarks, the ACA coverage requirements apply, RISA applies, HIPAA, COBRA. So there are significant coverage requirements that also apply. So those folks in the individual market, those folks in the small group market will also arguably benefit by being offered comprehensive coverage, because at least this is my opinion, of course. The reason why these small employers and self-employed individuals want to group together is because they want to sponsor a group health plan like large employers sponsor. And as many may know, large employers typically offer comprehensive plans to attract and retain talent, and that's no different when it comes to small employers. So lastly, with respect to how will AHPs, or excuse me, will AHPs work, and this goes to the self-funded question. So as Alden and I just articulated, there is a patchwork set of state MIWA laws that practically prevent self-funded MIWA or self-funded AHPs offering coverage in multiple states. Well, ERISA, the statute of ERISA, gives the Department of Labor actually the authority to develop what's called a class exemption. And this class exemption, should it be developed, 
would allow self-insured AHPs to be exempt from the non-solvency requirements of state MIWA laws. And if the Department of Labor were to uh, pursue the development of a class exemption and get one out there in final form, then that would arguably help self-insured AHPs and would make them work much better than what the current rules would allow. So will a class exemption be pursued by the Department of Labor? We don't know yet because the Department of Labor did not indicate that in their most recent final regulations, but they did speak favorably about it. So stay tuned to the Department of Labor pursuing such a class exemption. But in order for self-funded HPs to work, I believe a class exemption needs to be there. Now, will fully insured association health plans work? And I think that they will because there's enough national trade association organizations out there that want to offer coverage to their uh, employer members in multiple states. There are a number of national trade associations with independent contractors that want to offer coverage to their independent contractors. So as a result, I could see there being a demand for association health plans, and I think that the coverage requirements are there, and I think that depending on how the state insurance commissioners come down on this, that in the long term, uh, uh, AHPs will work. So Alden would like to turn it over to you to hear your thoughts. So I, I agree with Chris. I think he's got it right. Uh, the, the one thing I'd emphasize is that it's not all small groups that are going to benefit. It would principally be those with, that have the better risk profiles. So folks, say for in, in, in the IT industry, might be better off in an AHP than, say, in the construction industry. As for whether they'll work, I, I think you have to have to ask, what do you mean by work? They, they, will, they will result in a fundamental restructuring of the small group market that may be beneficial or may not, and that's something we don't know yet. But I think what you can predict is that we are going to see some enormous pushback by some states and perhaps from the NAIC, uh, because this rule is going to bring into, bring into focus fundamental questions of federalism uh, where, the, where the, the line dividing state and federal power, power is going to be tested uh, perhaps severely. So stay tuned for that. Yes, well, Alden and Chris, thank you so much for being here with me today. And as things develop, I hope you'll come back and we'll see where we are in maybe a few months and what develops then. So thank you. This is Andrea Ben-Yosef from Talking Tax. Thank you for joining us today on Talking Tax. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloomberg Tax and subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Tune in next time for more analysis on the newest tax issues. From the nation's capital, I'm Andrea Benyosef.